0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch.
1: The reading is taken from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation he is my god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him the lord is a warrior the lord is his name pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea the best of pharaoh's officers are drowned in the red sea the deep waters have covered them they sank to the depths like a stone your right hand lord was majestic in power your right hand Lord shattered the enemy in the greatness of your majesty you threw down those who opposed you you unleashed your burning anger it consumed them like stubble by the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up the surging waters stood up like a wall the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea the enemy boasted i will pursue i will overtake them i will divide the spoils i will gorge myself on them i will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters who among the gods is like you lord who is like you majestic in holiness awesome in glory working wonders you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Until your people pass by, Lord until the people you bought pass by. You'll bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea as though on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her, with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea.
0: Brothers and sisters, it's, it's good to be back together again. I had a good week study leave last week, uh, but it's great to be back uh, looking at God's word together. Uh, would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that your mercies are new to us every day. Uh, And we certainly, Father, uh, need your grace and mercy uh, in this moment. I pray that you would give me the grace that I need to uh, preach your word faithfully and clearly and persuasively. And I pray, Father, that you would give us all the grace that we need uh, to humbly listen to your word, to receive your word, uh, to have our hearts and minds transformed by your word. For the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Great victories demand great songs. I think that every time I see the Melbourne Football Club have a great victory, you know, it's a grand old flag. Their theme song goes ringing out around the MCG or whatever ground it is they're playing at this week during lockdown. Uh, if you don't know it, this is it, it goes, it's a grand old flag, it's a high-flying flag, it's the emblem for me and for you. Yeah, you, you get it. I won't punish you anymore with that song. Uh, but you get the idea, right? Great victories demand great songs. Uh, we see this with more serious things too, of course. Uh, I was trying to think of an Australian example of this, but, but, but the best one I could think of was actually an American example. On September the 14th, 1814, uh, a guy named Francis Scott Key wrote a poem uh, that was later set to music and in 1931 became the American National Anthem. Uh, Most of you know it. It's called The Star Spangled Banner. Uh, But what you might not know uh, is that Key wrote that song uh, as he was watching uh, the Maryland Fort being absolutely bombarded by the British. Uh, during the War of 1812. Uh, he was looking out over the scene of the war and he was inspired by a lone US flag flying over the top of the fort. Uh, and so he wrote these words. And the rocket's red glare, are the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Great victories demand great songs. And that's what we see here in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. This, our last passage in our current series on Exodus. Uh, we'll come back to Exodus uh, next year. Uh, in Exodus chapter 14, uh, we read the historical count of God defeating the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, thanks to Ken for unpacking that account last week. Uh, but what's clear is that God's defeat of the Egyptians was so magnificent, so great, uh, that merely recording the history wasn't enough. there had to be a song about it, because great victories demand great songs. So that's what we get here in Exodus chapter 15. We get this song about God defeating the Egyptians at the Red Sea. The big idea of this song is that God saves, so his people sing. God saves, so his people sing. They sing about what he has done. In particular, his defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And they sing about who he is, because what he has done reveals who he is. So first, let's look at the very start and end of this passage, where we see that truth that God saves, so his people sing. In verse 1 we read, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Then, but right after the Lord has saved his people, redeeming from them, uh, redeeming them from Egypt, uh, defeating the Egyptians at the Red Sea, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song, right? God saves uh, and his people sing. Uh, in verse 1, we see that, that Moses leads all the Israelites in singing, right? Women and children too. But then at the end of the passage, in verses 19 to 21, we see that Moses' sister Miriam leads all the Israelite women in singing. Now, This has raised some questions about exactly how this song was sung. You'll see in verse 21 that the first thing that Miriam sings is the same as the first thing that Moses and all the Israelites sing back in verse 1. right? So some people think, well, maybe Miriam and the women are going to re-sing the whole song here. Or perhaps verses 1 and 21 are a little bit like a chorus uh, that Miriam and the rest of the women uh, sing in response to Moses and the rest of the Israelites. Uh, The truth is we just don't know. And in the end, it's not actually that important, unless you're particularly interested in a biblical study of antiphonal singing, which is probably not many of you. Uh, What's most important is that all the Israelites were saved... And uh, so all of God's people sing, But right? All of God's people were saved, so all of God's people sing. And that's really a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. In Judges chapter five, uh, excuse me, in Judges chapter five, Israel has been saved from uh, from Jabin and Sisera, uh, so Deborah and Barak sing with joy to the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, King David has been saved from his enemies, so he sings. In Isaiah 51 verse 11, the Lord promises his people that when he saves them from their exile in Babylon, they will enter Jerusalem with singing. Now that's just a few examples from the Old Testament, let alone all the Psalms. But then we get into the New Testament, uh, and in Luke chapters 1 and 2, where we see that God sends his son into the world to save his people, uh, and there's like there's songs all over the place. The angels are singing, Mary's singing, Zechariah is singing, Simeon is singing. God saves and his people sing. In Colossians three, verse seventeen, Paul urges us as God's people to let the word of Christ dwell among us richly. How? As we sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Ephesians five, verse nineteen, Paul says that one of the marks of a community that's continually being filled with God's Spirit is that we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual uh, and sorry songs from the Spirit are singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. And in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we see that this is something that we're going to be doing forever. Singing the praises of our God, for he has saved us through Christ his Son. God saves, so his people sing. And this is one of the reasons why online church has been so hard, isn't it? We know that the God saved us so that we can sing his praises together, but at the moment, we're just not able to do that. It's also one of the reasons why we've kept including songs in online church, despite the fact that it's really quite clunky and weird, and most of you probably feel awkward singing along at home. But it's important because God has saved us to sing his praises together. So it's good for our souls, really. It's good for us spiritually to keep singing the praises of our God. So let me encourage you, as weird as you might find it, let me encourage you to sing along with the songs in online church. It really is good for you spiritually to sing the praises of your God who has saved you. And if you just find that too weird, let me encourage you to find some other time in your week to sing your God's praises. Because God saves and his people sing. What do the Israelites sing about? Well, first, they sing about what God has done. In this instance in particular, it's God's defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Look at verse 1. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. But why is the Lord highly exalted? Well, look, because both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. As Moses reflects on how God saved them at the Red Sea, he says it was like God picked up the mighty chariots of the Egyptians and just tossed them into the sea. Like you or I might toss away a piece of rubbish. This is God's defeat of the Egyptians. We see the same theme in verses 4 and 5. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his army God has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, the death, uh, sorry, not the death waters, the deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Now, if you're reading this closely, you might say, so which is it? Did, did God hurl the Egyptians into the sea? Or, or did the waters of the sea just cover them? Which is it? Of course, the answer to that is it's a song, right? it's poetry. We really shouldn't expect the kind of same precision of a song as we do a historical narrative, for example. And in the end, the point's the same, isn't it? God's victory over the Egyptians is completely comprehensive. It ends in the death of the Egyptians. We see another image of God's victory over the Egyptians in verse 6, where God, but by the power of his right hand, is said to have shattered the Egyptians, shattered his enemy, literally broken them to pieces. And You can imagine the Egyptian army there in the middle of the sea, and their chariots are just breaking to pieces, torn apart, as the pressurized waters of the sea collapse upon them. Verse 7 speaks of God throwing down the Egyptians, the Egyptians who had the audacity to oppose God in their pride. You read there in verse 7, in his fiery anger, God consumes the Egyptians like stubble. And maybe you remember that back in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh intensified the Israelites' slavery by refusing to give them stubble, for making bricks so here it's it's like god saying you you want to play games with stubble now i'll consume you like stubble in verses 9 and 10 the egyptians proudly boast look at verse 9 i will pursue i will overtake them that's the israelites I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. The Egyptians proudly boast. But look at verse 10. At the breath of God's mouth, they are covered by the sea. God utterly defeats the Egyptians. Finally, in verse 12, where we see that when God uh, stretches out his right hand, the earth swallows his enemies. The earth swallows his enemies. And again, you might say, but I thought it was the sea that swallowed the Egyptians, not the earth. Well, in this case, I do think there's an explanation that that word earth uh, can, uh, can actually mean the depths of the earth or maybe even what the Israelites would have called the underworld, the, the place of the dead. And I think that's what it means here. Uh, the point being that the gods, uh, in God's defeat of the Egyptians, they actually lost their lives or that they were swallowed up by the earth into the place of the dead. God's people sing about what he has done. Right? His glorious victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. But the Israelites recognise that what God has done reveals a whole lot about who he is. So they praise him for who he is as well. First, they praise their God as the eternal God. Take a look at verse 18. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Our sovereign God always has sat on his throne and he always will sit on his throne. Nothing in his world can unseat him from his throne, not even COVID-19. But this is our eternal God who reigns on his throne forever and ever. Uh, the Israelites praise him for that. Well, we see that again in the repeated use of the name the Lord throughout this song. Right? Moses makes it really clear in verse 3. Uh, he specifically says that the God who acted to defeat the Egyptians at the Red Sea, that God is the same God that appeared to him at the burning bush. Look in verse 3. He says, the Lord is his name. Remember that that small caps Lord there uh, means I am who I am. This is the, the self-existent God, the, the God who always has and always will exist. This is the eternal God whom Israel prays. The Lord is His name. Uh, they praise their powerful God as well. Look at verse six. Uh, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand I've well, got to be careful. God doesn't literally have hands, right? God is spirit. So what Moses is doing here is he's giving us a human picture to teach us something about God. To teach us that our God is a God who can powerfully intervene in his world at any moment. Right, His hand can do stuff in his world. That's what God has done in the book of Exodus. Right, It's what he promised to do. Remember these verses in Exodus 6 verse 1. God said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Likewise, in Exodus 7 verse 4, God said, Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And bring the Israelites out of it. But the Lord has put on display the power of his mighty hand. In redeeming his people from Egypt. In defeating the Egyptians at the Red Sea. This is our powerful God. And we see his power again in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Moses says, by the blast of your nostrils. Literally, by the breath of your nostrils. The waters piled up, right? This is what caused the waters to pile up so that the Israelites could move through. What is it that brought them down? Look at verse 10. Uh, Look at verse 10. Where is it here? I've got it in front of me. Uh, But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. The waters piled up and the waters were brought down by the powerful breath of God. Now, some of you have good memories might remember that last week in, in Exodus chapter 14 verse 21 uh, we were told there that the waters piled up because God brought a strong east wind. so you might be, you might be thinking is this a natural thing like a strong east wind or is this a supernatural thing the, the breath of God which is it? Uh, of course it's both isn't it they're really two sides of the same coin. Sometimes when God acts miraculously in his world, he acts by overriding the natural laws of creation. But in this case, and in fact with most of the plagues, God acts by working within, powerfully within the natural laws of creation, by stirring up an incredibly powerful east wind. But whose wind is it? Well, it's God's wind. It belongs to him. It does what God wants it to do because it's the breath of his nostrils. It's his breath. Even the most powerful wind belongs to our God. The Israelites praise their powerful God, who in this passage acts as a warrior God. So you're like, what? But look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior who fought against and defeated his enemies, the Egyptians, at the Red Sea. I wonder if you've got room for this idea that God is a warrior God in your understanding of God. In fact, not just have you got room for it. I wonder if you could actually praise God for being a warrior God, like the Israelites do here. It's really a bit foreign to most of us, I think. How could it possibly be a good thing, even a praiseworthy thing, for our God to act as a warrior God? I want to suggest that it's a good thing, at least first, Because I think all of us long for for someone who's finally able to do something about all the evil and injustice in this world. To fight against it and defeat it once and for all. I think we all long for, for those who oppose God and his people, who persecute God's people, who oppose the work of the gospel. I think we long, if you're a Christian, for those people to be brought down to size and for God to be glorified. And this passage assures us that one day our warrior God will do that. Now, maybe you're still not satisfied. You think, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just going to ignore this idea of God being a warrior God. Well, let me suggest that it might be a little bit easier for you to do that, because perhaps, maybe your life has been mostly quite comfortable. You've never really been the victim of deep evil and injustice. A guy named Miroslav Volf, in his book Exclusion and Embrace, he says that if we want to create a culture that encourages an attitude of non-violence towards others, non-retaliation, then we've also got to have a belief in divine vengeance Sounds a bit weird. He knows it's going to sound a bit weird. This is what he says. My thesis that the practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. Perhaps it is with you. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a a lecture about non-violence in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and levelled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's. Refusal to take vengeance. You see, if you or someone you know has been a victim of real evil and injustice, you will praise God that he's a warrior God. You will praise him that he says, vengeance is mine. Because it's knowing that, it's knowing that one day the Lord will avenge those, uh, that that he will make those people pay who've caused you real evil and injustice. It's knowing that, that it'll stop you taking vengeance into your own hands. So after centuries, 430 years of horrific suffering and evil in Egypt, the Israelites praise their warrior God. They praise their warrior God who acts in wrath and judgment because he is holy. Verse 11, look at verse 11. It describes God as majestic in holiness. Our God is so holy that he couldn't possibly turn a blind eye to sin or evil and injustice in his world. He can't turn a blind eye to to stuff that's destroying his people and his world that he loves, that he made. As one writer named Mariano de Gangi explains, this wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious, venting of some supernatural spleen. I like that line. It is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt and destroy the world that he has made. The Israelites praise their holy God. And they praise their lovingly faithful God. Now look at verse 13. In your unfailing love, Lord, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them in, uh, guide them to your holy dwelling. Uh, unfailing love there but it refers to God's loving faithfulness, right? God's rock-solid commitment to being faithful to all the promises he's made to his people. This has been a recurring theme in the book of Exodus, hasn't it? You, you remember God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3? God promised lob, land, offspring, and blessings. We've seen in the book of Exodus so far that God's fulfilled the promise of offspring, multiplying the descendants of Israel so that they're now leaving Egypt as a great nation. And now he's redeeming his people from Egypt, this great nation from Egypt. And so Moses' attention in verses 14 to 16 of our passage turns from the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham. Uh, And you'll see in those verses, verses 14 to 16, that as Moses looks forward to the land of Canaan, he looks forward with complete confidence, doesn't he? One by one, he traces the route that Israel's going to take into the promised land, and one by one, he talks about how God is going to defeat the nations. Uh, The Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, all of them will be defeated, just as the Lord has defeated the Egyptians. Uh, The Lord will keep defeating the nations until, verse 16, your people pass by, O Lord, uh, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, uh, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. My God's fulfilled his promise of offspring here. He's going to fulfill his promise of land. Uh, and here we see that he will fulfill his promise of blessing. At The heart of that blessing being in a relationship with God, living your life in the presence of God. So the mountain in verse 17 refers to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where God's temple will ultimately be built, where God will dwell amongst his people, bringing blessing both to them and to the land that he promised them. This is Israel's lovingly faithful God, uh, who they praise uh, uh, for fulfilling all his promises to them. Uh, So they come to the conclusion that he is the supreme God. Look at verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. We've got to remember that the Israelites had lived for more than 400 years amongst all the false gods of Egypt. They had this massive kind of pantheon of gods, all sorts of gods. And as they lived there, the Israelites must have started to wonder, where does our God rank among these gods? Maybe they started to have some doubts. But now they're in no doubt. They know that their God is the supreme God. No God is like their God. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, uh, working wonders, all of which God has just done in defeating the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Uh, The Israelites praise their supreme God. There is no one like him. Uh, God's people sing about what he has done. Because what he has done reveals who he is. So I wonder uh, if you're willing to make this song that we've looked at today your song. Are you willing to join in the chorus uh, of this million or two strong uh, crowd of Israelites by the, uh, by the Red Sea? You've really got to think about this yourself. Am I going to join in with this song? And notice all the personal pronouns in verse 2. Take a look at verse 2. Moses says, The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. You see how personal this is For Moses. What about for you? Will you join in singing this song? Will you make this song your song? You can do that today by like Moses declaring the Lord is my strength. And not that spiritually speaking you just need to be strengthened a little bit but that spiritually speaking you're utterly weak and you need the Lord to be your strength. Like the Lord is my strength, Moses says. Just picture the Israelites by the Red Sea. They had absolutely no strength to defeat the Egyptian armies that were racing towards them. The Lord had to act in his strength, in his power. Will you say, the Lord is my strength? Uh, are you conscious of your weakness and frailty? Will throw yourself upon the Lord and say, the Lord is my strength. And Moses says, the Lord uh, is my song. Uh, you'll see that the NIV translates song as defence. They put song down in the footnote. Uh, but I reckon that uh, song is the usual meaning of this word. And it fits pretty well in this context, doesn't it? In the context of, of a song, right? So Moses says, the Lord is my song. Well, what does it mean to say the Lord is my song? I think it means to say that I love the Lord. That the Lord has captured my heart, as it were. Because that's the stuff we sing about, isn't it? We sing about the people or things that we really love. The people or things that have captured our hearts. That's why lovers write poetry to one another. And if they've got the skill and they're kind of really kind of overflowing with love, uh, they'll put that poetry to music and sing a song to one another. Uh, Because their lover has become their song. They've captured their heart. They love them. And I reckon uh, you'll increasingly feel like that about the Lord. uh, If you come to understand that he has become your salvation. You see that, Moses says, the Lord has become my salvation. Remember the Israelites watching that the armies of Pharaoh coming towards them are standing there absolutely helpless, knowing that they had no way of saving themselves. If they were going to be saved, the Lord had to do it. And he did do it, didn't he? The Lord became their salvation. So he captured their hearts. What an incredible act of love for the Lord to save them in their helplessness, to defeat their enemies, to bring them out of Egypt and to bring them into the land that he would promised them, defeating all their enemies along the way. Fast forward to you as you listen to this today. You need to know that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you are hemmed in by your enemies on every side. By no way of escape, just like the Israelites by the Red Sea. And not the enemies of a nation like Egypt or any particular person, but the ultimate spiritual enemies that every human being has to face. Satan and sin and death. And apart from Christ, Satan rightly accuses you, sin rightly enslaves you, and death rightly contains you. But in Christ's death on the cross, God has defeated all of those enemies. It's amazing. He's defeated Satan because the only thing Satan can accuse you of is your sin. And if you trust in Christ, Christ has already died for your sin on the cross, bearing the punishment that you deserve. Satan is defeated. He's defeated sin because sin can only enslave people uh, whose uh, sins have not been paid for, who have not been redeemed from sin or liberated from sin. Uh, But Christ has already paid for your sins on the cross by his blood being shed on the cross. Uh, And so God has defeated death. Because death is the punishment for sin, for rejecting God, the source of all life. But if Christ has already died the death that you deserve in your place on the cross, then death can never contain you. God has defeated all your enemies in Christ's death on the cross. So if you're not a Christian... You must realize that the Lord is your only hope of salvation. And in His great and abundant love, He sent Christ your Son to defeat all your enemies. There's nothing left for you to do except for to trust in Christ His Son. This is God's greatest victory. so it demands God's greatest song. It demands not just the voices of the Israelites, but the voices of a people from every nation. It demands your voice. Will you join this song today? Don't delay. In the end, today is the only day you know for sure that you have, isn't it? Will you join this song today? Will you say, the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my song, the Lord has become my salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you are indeed our strength, our song, and because you have become our salvation in Christ, your son, who has defeated all our enemies. We pray, Father, that this day you would fill our hearts afresh with joy and move us as your saved people to sing your praises. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.